The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all right, welcome to the program. It is Monday. Uh, we've got a lot on our plate this week. We're going to try to hit the ground running uh, today uh, in the first hour. We've got some breaking news uh, regarding the UN Relief and Works Agency. It's under attack. Uh, well, not militarily. Well, it was in, in Gaza, uh, but it's also under attack politically. The United States and Israel are trying to pull funding from it, trying to basically destroy this UN agency based in Gaza. They're accusing uh, the agency and the UN of harboring Hamas terrorists within the organization. Is there any validation to these claims? We'll talk to uh, independent correspondent in Washington, D.C., Sam Husseini, in the first hour uh, to talk about this issue, very important issue. Uh, and also in the second hour, we're going to be joined by one of our favorite guests, Mats Nilsson from Sweden to talk about Sweden, Iran, and tensions which are brewing uh, in Europe and the Middle East. How is this going to affect the people in Europe and the West more broadly? We're going to have that very important discussion. Where is all this headed? That's the big question. Everybody wants to know, where is this all headed? You see a lot of tensions ratcheting up right now, a lot of uh, rhetoric coming out of Washington uh, regarding Iran uh, after the incident which has happened. They say in Jordan, but I'm not convinced and neither are a number of experts of u.s troops in jordan that were killed we believe we believe and we have good reason to believe that those troops were actually killed in syria why would the u.s not want to admit that they were in syria and try to say they were a few kilometers over the border in jordan there are huge legal ramifications to the united states losing servicemen in jordan the kingdom of jordan or syria more more aptly there are no legal implications in jordan because that's legal the u.s presence in syria is illegal unfortunately um so we're going to talk about this uh more briefly now uh, u.s troops killed in jordan that's the headline you see that all over the news um but where are they really that's the question president biden believes that radical iranian-backed militia groups operating syrian iraq are responsible for killing u.s soldiers and he has promised a response a proportional response uh, so what's this mean is it going to bomb syria is it going to bomb iraq he can't bomb iraq that's going to be problematic the united states is currently negotiating a withdrawal from iraq so this is problematic on a number of levels the iraqi government and the parliament asked the u.s to leave years ago and the u.s basically said no we don't want to leave we'll leave when we want to leave um, you're not in charge of your own country we're occupying so forget it same with Syria. They don't even ask the Syrian government. They just, they're occupying 25% of the Syrian landmass in northeastern Syria, and also an area called Al-Tamf, um, where the United States is keeping uh, a watchful eye on ISIS down there. It's funny that ISIS only exists in areas where the U.S. is present, if you can believe that and understand how that is, but that's where it is. Three U.S. Army soldiers were killed. 34 others were injured in a drone attack on an outpost they're saying in jordan uh, but it's actually a shared outpost that stretches across the border into syria very convenient so centcom has put out this information so there are huge ramifications to the u.s having soldiers killed in action in syria it's an illegal occupation under international law they've been there since 2017 
officially. Unofficially, they've been there for much longer, working with the various rebel factions in Syria, our special forces, not just the United States, but Britain as well. Uh, so that's the real scoop there. And the Islamic resistance in Iraq, okay, they're calling it an umbrella group of Shia militias. Uh, more aptly, you have the People's Mobilization Units, the Hashd al-Shabi. It's interesting how the Western media don't want to acknowledge that some of these militias are under the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. That's correct. They don't like to say that because they prefer the narrative, which is Iranian proxies, uh, to make them look more unofficial, uh, when in fact many of these groups are absolutely official. They're claiming this is a rogue group uh, that have attacked these U.S. soldiers and so forth. So uh, the U.S. effectively provoked the airstrike on its base with increased attacks on troops allied with the axis of resistance in Syria, says a news agency and a commentator of Fawad Azidi out of the University of Tehran. Uh, and he's saying attempts to reframe these militias as Iranian-backed do not change their essential nature. What the U.S. is trying to do is link these organizations to Iran, hiding the fact that there is a lot of discontent in both Iraq and Syria against U.S. occupation. That is 100% true, unfortunately, for the United States. So they're really working hard to spin this uh, in the Western media. And Iran was not responsible for the attacks, say the Iranian Ministry of Information spokesperson, uh, Esmail Khatib, which he told uh, Iranian state outlet uh, this week. And he's clarifying that Iraqi resistance groups that took credit for the attack were acting independently and would continue to act as it deemed necessary against the aggressive presence in the U.S. So, look, the fact of the matter is this. The, Syria and Iraq cannot have a border which they can go and traverse because the United States is occupying that border and is not allowing uh, normal trade and commerce over that border. And there's a reason for that. Okay, this is why ISIS, ISIS exists as well, to maintain that border uh, as a unstable, dangerous place. Okay, so the U.S., together with ISIS and other sort of radical, uh, militant, religious bent groups, um, are, are tasked with keeping that border unstable so that Syria cannot be given any aid or fuel or anything like that has to be ungovernable, that area, so that they can't bail out Syria. Syria's under sanctions, sanctions by the U.S., sanctions by the EU, okay? They're embargoed. There's a vice grip on Syria. The U.S. and the EU are trying to strangle the country's economy to, to create what the U.S. called maximum pressure uh, in order to somehow prompt a revolution in the country or prompt the population to rise up and overthrow the, quote, Assad regime. That's the plan. It's been the plan for a very long time since sanctions came into play 2013-14, okay, against Syria. So the United States has always had this on the cards. Is this a U.S. interest? Well, it is convenient the U.S. is occupying, U.S. troops are occupying Syria's oil and gas fields at Deir Azor. What are they doing with the oil? They're shipping it out for cash and putting that in a slush fund for black operations. What else could they be doing with it? So black operations for arming these militant groups 
who knows, ISIS might be getting uh, parlaying weapons and other support through this cash slush, slush fund of stolen oil from Syria. Assassinations. Could Israel be using this money for its uh, subterfuge and clandestine operations in the region? Who knows? I wouldn't put it past the realms of possibility. But uh, this is a fact. They're stealing the oil and they're doing, we don't, we're not sure what with the cash they're making. There's a lot of middlemen profiting uh, along the way as well. So that's the reality of it. Okay. So that, so now you have a very highly unstable situation. The United States is legally occupying Syrian territory against the will of Damascus. Of course, Syria's not going to attack them because they don't want to wreak the wrath of the United States. Um, they don't, no one wants to start a war with the U.S. The U.S. can kind of go around and occupy what they want, when they want, but they're doing this not for U.S. interests. They're doing it for the interests of Syria's neighbor to the south. That is the state of Israel, to keep Syria divided, unstable, and unable to assist the Palestinians and also unable to move on Syrian territory, which was stolen by Israel, called the Golan Heights. Very important. Again, rich with oil. This is the, these, these regions could make Syria more independent and bring a lot of their population out of poverty. This is why the U.S. and Israel um, are not allowing Syria to have access to their own fuel. It's as simple as that. A weak Syria is good for Israel. This has always been the adage and it continues to be so today, it's clear to see in the policies. It doesn't take a rocket science, rocket scientist to work it out, folks. So look, let's take a break right now. We're going to try to connect our first guest, Sam Husseini, uh, independent correspondent from Washington, D.C., to talk about the targeting, the political targeting of the U.N. Aid and Relief Works Agency, UNRWA, which is caught in a controversy. They're trying to pull funding, trying to destroy this agency. We'll talk about that and more with our next guest on the other side. Stay right there. Now, as we move into an election year in US politics at a time when the Western empire is under attack from within, as if an orchestrated decline is the plan, whilst at the same time, the rise of BRICS nations represents a rise of a new multipolar order institutions that have controlled the world are at last being questioned for their behavior and their failures. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the truth shall set us free. Those two statements sit at opposite ends of the zeitgeist in a world that is filled with death, destruction, deceit, and a wholesale unwillingness to hold anyone in power to account, except for anyone who takes power against the ruling elite, of course, and then we have seen how that system works. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. The Irish government is proposing a law known as the Hate Speech Bill that threatens free speech. This law could have dire consequences for our democracy. Next month, next month, and then on to the next month. This law will have uncertain effects on artistic and musical expression. Please support us. It could stifle the activity of public campaigning on political and civil issues and also curtail speech relating to topics about religion, ethnicity, sex, and gender. 
You could even be jailed for possessing documents, cartoons, or memes on your devices, even if you never read them or intended on sharing them. Mere possession could make you a criminal under this law. Help stop this law. Visit www.freespeechireland.ie forward slash take action to bin the hate speech bill. CO2 sustains all life on Earth, but now it's in long-term decline. We face the return of an ice age. We mandate that the truth be told. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Great to have you with us in our number one. Appreciate you coming along. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat community. Great to see you guys in there. That's a little red bubble, uh, the little red pill uh, at the lower right-hand corner of your browser. If you go to tntradio.live and you click on that, you'll see the chat community there. We've got a very vibrant chat group in there. They're in there all the time, and they're hitting it hard with the information, the debate, and the banter. Really appreciate you guys in there that's where you want to be during this live broadcast if you're watching on video or if you're just listening on audio that's where the action is during the program off stage now i want to bring on to the program independent journalist sam hussein he's based in washington dc a very important story has crept up which we want to discuss obviously there's other topics that we're going to cover but uh the un works relief agency unra has been targeted well it has been targeted militarily as we said earlier by the idf as they've been bombing and uh, attacking the population in gaza uh, so it has been physically targeted now it's being politically targeted they're trying to attack the funding of this this efforts led by the united states uh, and israel of course what is behind this this is a very interesting play that we're watching now uh, i want to welcome onto the program journalist sam husseini from the united states Sam, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Patrick. Thank you. Sam, I wanted to to start straight off on this topic because uh, this the story's kind of really hit the headlines, and uh, I, I don't think I don't think the mainstream media is reporting this particularly well. Uh, there's a lot more at play here, I think, than the sort of the general headlines are saying on this. They're accusing this agency of harboring ten uh, percent of their employees are linked to Hamas. Hence, they're threatening the funding of it. It almost seems like they want to destroy the agency altogether. What's your take on this story, Sam? Yeah, uh, I think that the UNRWA has been in Israel's, uh, you know, on Israel's hit list, effectively, for quite some time. Uh, it's often been the, the lifeline of Okay. Yeah, I think we've, uh, sorry, we've lost Sam there for a moment. Let me see if we can get him back. Yeah, we're going to, uh, we're going to try to reconnect uh, Sam Husseini. I think we've lost the signal, uh, unfortunately. We'll try to reconnect him uh, briefly. Uh, but just to recap the story, the UN, uh, the UN Reef, uh, Relief uh, works and relief agency um, has been targeted politically. Now there's been uh, a, a major sort of campaign to try to attack uh, this agency. Uh, why? Well, as it turns out, and we'll hopefully speak about this uh, with Sam Husseini, but um, as it turns out, this is the same agency that provided evidence to the South African uh, delegation for the international courts of justice 
uh, case against the state of Israel. Now, it's no coincidence then that they're being targeted, and this is being led by the Israeli delegation. This is being led by Washington. So you can see there's definitely something at play. I think we have Sam back on the line. I just briefly interrupted connection there. Sam, have we got you back? Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Israel has wanted to slice and dice and possibly replace uh, UNRWA for some time. It's been the lifeline for Palestinians, for refugees, um, uh, providing them necessities of life, education, um, and, and so on. And, of course, they've directly bombed them, as, as you indicated. Uh, and, and now, uh, and uh, Trump, I know, threatened and I think scaled back the funding for UNRWA at Israel's behest. And uh, Biden seemed to have, you know, backed away from that, but now uh, they're coming after them for a, with, with a vengeance. And I should emphasize the timing of this is especially interesting because, of course, on Friday you had the International Court of Justice um, hand down uh, their orders uh, for uh, regarding South Africa's genocide case against Israel uh, by, you know, 15 to 2, gave up a whole series of demands upon Israel. Um, and in the U.S. president uh, uh, of the court, uh, Donahue, beating, uh, she read off, uh, you know, pieces of evidence to support their ruling from UNRWA. And then lo and behold, right around the same time, uh, Israel makes these allegations uh, allegedly against a handful of uh, the 30,000 people that are uh, employed by UNRWA that they allegedly um, had some unspecified role um, in the October 7th attacks, um, and that this is becoming a pretext for, you know, going after UNRWA, U.S., and, uh, you know, Canada and Britain and all these other countries uh, cutting off funding uh, to UNRWA just after the court said, yeah, Looks like Israel may be committing genocide, and you have to ensure humanitarian. Um, among one, one of the orders from the court was that Israel had to ensure uh, humanitarian relief for the Palestinians. And what does Israel do? It gets the U.S. to cut off one of the few remaining lifelines of humanitarian relief for the, for the Palestinians. It's it, 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 it's you know what what, what the U.S. and uh, Israel want is for the Palestinians to just die quietly is what they're saying because if you you know if you UNRWA you know provide uh, you know statements to the International Court of Justice uh, to attack Israel where we're effectively going to retaliate against that you know just die quietly uh, rather than um, you know, putting up a fight here, and then we're going to effectively starve you faster uh, if, if you do that. that. That's effectively the message that Israel and the United States are, are sending to the Palestinians and to support agencies like UNRWA. And, you, you know, uh, I should add, I, I'm sorry, Patrick, I know I've been going on for a bit here. No, carry on. But, you know, I, yeah, I mean, UNRWA, it, it, in, so the creation of UNRWA is itself a complete compromise. Right, because 
It was created after the 1948 war uh, that created Israel and all of these Palestinians uh, were uh, driven out of their homes. And under international law, they should have been allowed back in their homes after the war. Uh, But Israel never allowed that. And so as a compromise, the UN created UNRWA in order to kind of put keep these Palestinians on life support until some kind, you know, as almost a temporary measure until something could be figured out what to do about all of these Palestinian refugees that Israel had driven out. And nothing was ever done to or for these Palestinian refugees effectively. Um, and so Inrua stayed around as this sort of system of life support. And now, just as Israel is <laughs> is viciously attacking, uh, genociding against Palestinians in Gaza, you're seeing the United States and these other uh, Western countries, in effect, try to pull the plug on this life support system. It, it you know, I mean, people who say that the U.S. and Israel don't know what they're doing, I think, don't know what they're saying. They do know what they're doing. So this is a plan. This is extraordinary, Sam. Just after the interim ruling by the International Courts of Justice, effectively on the path to officially condemning uh, Israel for genocide, part of that genocide, the stipulations are that Israel must not impede aid food water going into these people in gaza and here they go immediately after the ruling sam immediately after the ruling going for the jugular of the main un aid agency this this is the chutzpah is unbelievable uh am i reading this wrong no that's absolutely the correct reading uh i mean i i, I mean it's very difficult for me to believe that Israel just got hold of this alleged evidence um, uh, with regards to, you know, the allegations against these UNRWA uh, employees. Uh, they released this at a time and place of their choosing, and it's a retaliation against, um, uh, effectively, a, against the court, against UNRWA, against international law and against the prospect of humanitarian relief uh, for the Palestinians. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's effectively kind of, among other things, a kind of psychological warfare. You know, if, if the Palestinian spirits were lifted by the ICJ's ruling, uh, Israel wants to keep them in check by saying, no, we're going to hit you harder in a different sort of way. Uh, in order to, to to keep you in check and show you who's boss. That's effectively what Israel is doing to the Palestinians in very real human terms in Gaza. There's also another thing, uh, Sam, and I know this is uh, speculation, but a lot of people are talking about the possibility that the long-term plan here is to try to mothball the entire agency and then replace it with something more uh, agreeable to what the U.S. wants um, and staffed by a whole different range of people. Uh, who knows what that would entail? But, you know, UNRWA on the ground is mostly local Gazans. So is this a case of 
You know, the U.S., Israel would rather have other people in charge uh, on the ground in there, like, for instance, people from the U.S., people from Europe. From... Quite, Go right, ahead. Quite, quite possibly. I mean, I suspect that Israel and the U.S., you know, have several layers of goals. I mean, their, you know, their ultimate goal is to drive out the Palestinians from the Gaza Strip so that Israel can take it over. Um, they may feel like they may or may not be able to do that at this time, at this stage. And so a, you know, a half step to that is to effectively destroy Enrua and, you know, keep the Palestinians on harsher leash with some other entity uh, providing relief that won't, you know, uh, have any meaningful signs of empathy uh, towards the Palestinians. And that, that'll, you know, in effect, be, be a, a more brutal uh, mechanism that'll be, you know, providing education, um, uh, relief, uh, food, uh, and so on. Uh, so I, I can well see that that, that would be an intermediate step, uh, a goal by the U.S. and Israel to replace it with something else. And the other thing people aren't aware of, Sam, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, some of the conditions on the ground there, um, because there's, you know, it lacks a functioning economy on certain levels. Uh, one of the biggest, if not the largest employer in Gaza are uh, foreign NGOs. This is how sort of, you know, economically eviscerated the area has been because of the blockade, because of occupation. Um, so people rely on these NGOs and UN affiliate agencies for employment, for subsistence. Um, and, and that's a reality as well. So in effect, they're also potentially taking jobs away. Uh, what few jobs there are in, in Gaza. Uh, what can you say about that side of things? Yeah, no, that, uh, that's absolutely true. As I said, you have some 30,000 employees uh, of UNRWA. I think that includes not just Gaza, but also the West Bank. Um, and UNRWA probably still has uh, functioning operations among Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, possibly even in Jordan still. I, I'm not sure. I mean, my, my dad, uh, just you know, footnote here, when he was a refugee from 1948, he, he would tell me later on um, in, in his life that he, he doesn't know what would happen to him if he were, if there wasn't an Rua. It was a, you know, a, a critical lifeline um, in the aftermath of the 1948 war um, uh, for him and uh, hundreds of thousands of other Palestinians who were driven from their homes and had no means of support in the aftermath of, of uh, Israel driving out um, the Palestinians then so it you know that they're unplugging it now at this at this critical stage and as you say it's it's a it's a major employer as well um i, I should note you know francis boyle um who you know was sort of the first person to really argue um about um uh, you know invoking the genocide convention um against israel has been arguing um uh, the last day or two after the U.S. and these other countries um, did this, that in effect, Israel, uh, the, the U.S. and the other countries have gone from complicity with Israeli genocide to actually partaking in it. Um, that, that, that is, um, 
you know, uh, part of the Genocide Convention uh, prohibits, quote, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And he's saying, look, Israel had been doing that. The U.S. had been complicit in that. And now now the U.S. government and these other governments, um, Canadian, Britain, and so on, that are also cutting off funding at this critical time, are in effect now guilty of that as well. Um, so you, you, this could end up creating an opening for other states, either South Africa or other states, to actually uh, open up court cases at the International Court of Justice um, against the, the United States, uh, Britain, Canada, and these other countries. Wow. So, so you know, so what you're saying is that interim ruling, it seems like anyway, um, it's, it's like when you, you know, have a bail hearing, Israel sort of re- right. released on bail, but this would violate the terms of that bail, you know, in, in lieu of whenever the the actual trial would take place in the future. But so that that would that would be a cause for immediate action, would it not? It, I think that an argument like that could be constructed. I, I've you know I've reached out to other legal analysts as to what I mean. Right now, but by the calendar of the court, um, they're supposed to Israel is supposed to report back to the court in a month about how it has complied with the court's orders. But the on the ground reality is that Israel, in conjunction with these other states, has dramatically escalated uh, the damage they are inflicting on the Palestinian people. So um, it arguably would be in the purview of South Africa or other countries to now come before the court and say, look at what Israel is doing. Um, it is, you know, even more brazen violation now of the genocide convention, um, and, 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 and the court should, you know, have, you know, pursue even more, um, you know, stringent orders, uh, against Israel for these genocidal actions. Could, could this prompt, uh, Sam, not getting too far ahead of ourselves here, but could a crisis like this possibly prompt uh, a UN Security Council uh, meeting on this uh, to maybe have a vote again, once again, on the on the ceasefire. Uh, I know Francis Boyle and others have spoken about this sort of chain of events that would take place uh, after the uh, interim ruling by the ICJ. Uh, what, what, what do you think? Well, the, the word that I have is that there's probably going to be a UN Security Council meeting um, on Wednesday. Uh, uh, apparently being led by Algeria or, or being brought forth uh, to the to the uh, to the court uh, to, to the uh, Security Council by Algeria, uh, presumably to enforce the orders that were issued on Friday uh, before this news about UNRWA um, uh, uh, against Israel by the ICJ. Um, uh, now. Uh, a lot of people had presumed that the U.S. would simply um, veto whatever the Security Council did, uh, whatever was put forward before the Security Council, and that therefore uh, the General Assembly uh, would try to use the Uniting for Peace uh, process to 
uh, to address issues, to more forcefully uh, push for a ceasefire, to um, uh, possibly suspend Israel uh, from participation in the General Assembly, to possibly admit Palestine as a full member rather than just having observer status, and potentially to uh, set up a tribunal uh, to prosecute individuals since the International Criminal Court is refusing to do that. Um, but I, I think that there's also a possibility, and, and Craig Murray, Ambassador Craig Murray, has an interesting piece that touches on this. Um, it's possible that the U.S. plan had been to, um, uh, to, to not veto it and to pretend that Israel is going to comply uh, with the court, um, you know, particularly since the U.S. representative on the ICJ um, voted for it, uh, and they could try to construct this narrative uh, that Israel was actually complying. I don't know how you do that with the whole UNRWA cutoff, though. Uh, so uh, I would hope that part of the agenda in front of the Security Council is this latest move by the U.S. Uh, and these other countries in terms of UNRWA, which should isolate them more uh, diplomatically, uh, particularly with the uh, ICJ ruling. Um, so that, I think that's the next thing to watch out for, what's going to happen on Wednesday at the Security Council. Wow, that's going to be very interesting. So midweek, uh, all eyes on the UN Security Council. That's when we're going to see things uh, set in motion or not, uh, depending on how things develop from there. But uh, Sam Husseini, a journalist based in Washington, D.C., we really appreciate you joining us here. We've also put Sam's uh, substack as well uh, on the Chiron. You guys want to be following Sam Husseini on social media, on X Twitter, and also at Substack. Sam, thank you for joining us on TNT this week. Always great to be with you, Patrick. Thank you. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, as Sam Husseini. Excellent report. Uh, that's the sort of analysis we were looking for, and uh, we got it. Thank you very much. Uh, Sam is a fantastic journalist, and he's been watching this issue very closely. In fact, Sam Husseini is one of the first people to really campaign for the ICJ case back in October and uh, November. He was the one pushing this hard, lobbying hard. So uh, there's others too who joined in that effort, but uh, he does deserve uh, a lot of recognition and credit for his enthusiasm and his hard work uh, to make some of these things a reality. So it all takes a little bit of work on everybody's part, uh, folks, and uh, we all have a part to play in this. Even you, our listeners at TNT, and a lot of you guys have been involved in this on social media too, helping to retweet and pushing some of these hashtags regarding the ICJ uh, for the last couple of months and our hats are off to you as well so it's been uh, quite it's been quite a journey over the last uh, three and a half months look let's take a break right now with the network TNT and when we come back we will connect hopefully with our roving correspondent for news and analysis, Basil Valentine's going to be joining us on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Stay right there. While serving in Afghanistan, I was hit by sniper fire. The fighting was so intense, the medevac chopper was barely able to land. In the hospital, I was given a 5% chance to live. It's a good thing math wasn't my best subject. Today, I visit classrooms and share my story. 
I talk to kids about dealing with life struggles. I tell them with a little help and a lot of work that you can overcome any challenge. DAV helps veterans like Adam get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. I know that some struggles are big and some are small, but they're all struggles and you have to learn to get through them. With support from DAV, more veterans like me can live their best life. And as a new father, I have one more reason to keep on keeping on. My victory is being there for the next generation. Adam Alexander, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Anticipate potential delays for the morning commute. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. What are you talking about, man? Look at his stats. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 no. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to TNT Today's News Talk. We're still in hour number one of this live broadcast, and uh, we were going to bring in Basil Valentine. We've had to push him off uh, to the second hour. There's some breaking news. Basil's researching it um, as we speak, so we thought we'd push a, change the segment slightly to adapt to what's breaking. Uh, so Basil will join us uh, in the second hour. So I look forward to connecting him uh, later after we connect with our next guest, Matt Nielsen, in the second hour. Looking forward to that conversation as well now all this talk of genocide and you know one forgets in history about other uh, genocides and there have been and there have been many sadly there have been many too many in the 20th century one of the worst ones that doesn't really get talked about especially in the west uh, is the siege of leningrad okay uh, this is when the nazis basically tried to kill millions of russians by blockading and sieging the city of leningrad it's actually 80 years ago uh, the anniversary the red army broke the siege of leningrad which could or which had claimed actually unfortunately millions of lives uh, now it's called saint petersburg uh, and it survived the bloodiest blockade in human history. An unbelievable story. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the suffering that uh, Russia went through in Second World War to defeat the Nazis, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't really get reported in the West. This is really down to the Cold War and not wanting to publish anything sympathetic uh, or giving Russia credit for anything uh, in the Second World War. But uh, this is the problem, uh, especially in the West. So St. Petersburg used to be called Leningrad, and uh, Nazi Germany laid siege uh, to Russia's former capital. Now listen closely. The siege lasted 872 days. 872 days. Now what we're seeing in Gaza, and you know how bad it is, okay? You know how bad it is. 
People are drinking bilge water if they can find it. They're, they're, they're literally, the kids are scraping for crumbs on the ground outside if they can find any. Okay, that's how bad it is. So that's three and a half months. Now imagine, imagine two and a half years, two and a half years, 872 days claiming the lives of up to 1 million civilians and half a million soldiers 80 years ago. And this is an incredible story. And a breach was made in that blockade of the city. Operation Iskra opened a narrow, bare, exposed, but nevertheless operational land corridor from the mainland. Great report here, and I'll direct people to RT International. If you're if you're living in the UK or France, you can't read this because your governments have said this is too dangerous for you to see, so it's banned on URLs in Britain and France, and I believe Germany as well. Unfortunately, the censorship. So this is historical fact banned in the West for Russian disinformation, but uh, you know this is an important story because um, there's lessons to be learned here, and. When the Russians broke the siege, um, this really was following a string of uh, catastrophic uh, failures um, by the Nazis uh, in terms of what they were doing in other theaters at the time. And this was the beginning. While this was a victory, it seemed it was regarded as a victory by the Nazis, um, but it was really their undoing. Um, their whole operation uh, to try to take Moscow, which many have over the years, uh, ended in failure and actually broke the world's most powerful military machine at the time uh, of the Third Reich. So it's, it's, it's a great lesson of history, and uh, the suffering's incredible. Uh, there were no cats left in Leningrad. Uh, because people had been catching them, uh, street cats as well, and basically for food. Uh, there's a, there was an interesting story about one cat, which was hidden in a closet by its owner to prevent it from going outside, uh, that it might end up um, being you know cooked by the residents there. That might sound grim, but that's how desperate the situation was. It was more desperate than that. In fact, I won't even go into the gory details of it. Suffice to say... Uh, when the siege was lifted and when life began to return to Leningrad, um, that cat was then let out, and it was the only cat left in Leningrad. True story. And uh, cats were so rare at the time, people were paying up to 500 rubles to get their hands on a cat because they were just hard to get a hold of. They weren't around. So another interesting story. so many of these uh, interesting human stories uh, about this much untold uh, catastrophic event in history that we in the West are not allowed to know about. And it, it is pretty incredible. Uh, due to the Red Army's disastrous start to the war uh, and the general chaos in the country's administration, Leningrad was absolutely unprepared for such a siege. It was impossible to carry out fully-fledged evacuation of the city's three million residents along with just two railway lines in such a relatively short space of time and military enterprises were evacuated first. Some people were left to defend the city. Many were evacuated as much as they could. Children were also sent away to protect them from the bombings and artillery shellings, as it is in Donbass as well. 
which the ICC indicted Putin and Russian officials for kidnapping children by sending them away to protect them from bombing and shelling by the Ukrainians, believe it or not. Anyway, this was back then. Uh, Leningrad's youngest residents were not taken inland, but to suburbs and villages near the city, which most of them soon returned to the city. Uh, but it's just absolutely a catastrophe. You look at the pictures of this, and it does remind us a lot of the scenes we're seeing in Gaza. Obviously, colder weather uh, in Russia at that time, uh, and uh, really um, two and a half years. It's pretty grim winters there. Um, it's, it's, it's not great uh, in Gaza uh, during the winter either, and think of that sort of times five uh, in a city like St. Petersburg. So this is it, and there were survivors of the genocide, but they're not celebrated uh, in the way that uh, the survivors of other genocides are celebrated, at least not in the West, but in Russia. They're regarded with very high esteem, uh, incredible survivors from the blockade, the Nazi attempt to kill everybody in the city of Leningrad. This is one of the cruelest acts ever done, and this just shows you, okay? This just shows you, this is... This was, in fact, a genocide. It could have been worse, uh, given another six months or so, but it's absolutely incredible how many people did survive as a result of this. And it really goes to show you the, the, the dedication, the consternation of the Russian people in the face of such adversity. And there's a little warning tale as well for NATO in the West that Russia has been set upon by Europeans before, before NATO, they have taken the worst possible blows that could be dealt to a country, and they remain standing, and not just standing victorious. And it's interesting, there's a French pollster, I think it's Glenn, Glenn Deason, uh, did a tweet on this, uh, looking at the polling numbers. This was done uh, by, by a pollster, in, I think it was in France, and they're saying, what, what are people's memories of the Second World War? This is very interesting. Uh, do people remember who won the Second World War, who liberated Europe, or who sort of liberated Berlin uh, during the Second World War? And what's interesting is when you look at the polling on this, and you see they polled uh, people at different times on this and gotten different answers over time. So the closer you were to World War II, the more people in Europe acknowledged that it was the Soviet Union. Uh, that won and defeated Germany in 1945. And then later, you'll find in the 90s, for instance, that number dropped significantly. So this is done by a French polling firm. Again, Glenn Deason's been a, a, a guest on the show before. Uh, in my mind, one of the best geopolitical analysts there are, there is, a fabulous author and researcher as well, based in Norway. And Glenn Deason uh, cited this on his uh, his Twitter feed recently. We retweeted it, of course. Uh, French polls on which nation contributed most to the defeat of Germany in 1945. Okay. Now, this poll in 1945 was taken, Soviet Union, 57% versus the U.S., 20%. So people in Europe knew the United States did not contribute the most to the defeat of Nazi Germany right after the war. Uh, then later, 1994, those numbers reversed. By that time, the Soviet Union, 25%, the U.S., 49%. So that flipped, basically. Uh, 
and more Europeans believe that the United States defeated Nazi Germany and not the Soviet Union, the Red Army. In 2004, they, they absolutely flipped. 20% uh, said the Soviet Union, 58% said the United States. Isn't that incredible? And what Glenn said here, and he posted the results on this, by the way, uh, I think this was via Vox. This would have been uh, actually an article from 2014, great research by Glenn. He said, and I quote, reality can be canceled by a political propaganda. Reality can be canceled by political propaganda. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? That's a, that is a profound statement. So what we believe about history, so what we believe about reality in general um, is also a, a result of how we've been conditioned, the propaganda that we've been conditioned with. And so, so much so that we can then at some point, it might take 10 years, it might take a generation, but at some point, we our minds could even be changed to believe that one party won a war or defeated an enemy rather than the one who actually did. Our reality can be warped to that degree. This is the power of propaganda. And this is one of the things that we focus a lot on this program uh, to try to debunk some of the fake news that comes out on a daily basis uh, in, in the Western media, uh, and also go back retrospectively and try to do a little bit of house cleaning on some of these narratives as well. And it's a very important exercise. And because what you're seeing now, we are careening towards World War III. And my biggest fear, as, me as well as many others' fear, is that we will be led into World War III uh, on the back end of fake news or a false flag, or some sort of lie. Now, you don't think that's possible? Well, let me tell you, it's very possible. Something as big and serious as World War III can happen based on a lie. And I'll give, just give you a little explanation here. When it comes to genocides, most genocides, when they're enacted, you know, we're talking about Rwanda, we're talking about the uh, Holocaust uh, in Nazi Germany in 1930s and 40s, uh, or talking about the Israeli genocide of the native Palestinian population in Gaza, okay? All of these have one thing in common, or the Native American genocide at the hands of the U.S. Uh, colonial forces heading westward way back then. All of these have something in common. And what do they have in common? They're usually started on a lie. You need a lie or a set of lies in order to carry out a genocide because you need an army or you need soldiers you need uh, uh assailants and accessories in order to carry out a genocide so you need to get people motivated you need to get them working for you you need to get them passionate angry uh you want to have them filled with vengeance okay the only way to do that successfully and immediately is to tell a big crazy story uh, you need a pack of lies to do it. That's something you will find consistent throughout history. Consistent throughout history. Look at the rhetoric in Ukraine. Look at the stuff that we've seen from some of these Nazi factions, from Zelensky himself. Uh, you know, characterizing Russians as subhuman, uh, as orcs. This is the sort of terms they're using. Uh, so that was really fodder for motivating 
the extremist radicals, the Azov battalions, various Nazi factions embedded in the Ukrainian armed forces uh, to motivate them to kill Russians. The United States does this all the time, especially post 9-11 with Arabs. Israel is unbelievable in the racist indoctrination uh, in that society, of course. But the lies on October 7th, which have been proven, exposed in real time, debunked in real time, those lies, without those lies, there would be no uh, genocide in Gaza. For argument's sake, uh, there's been an ongoing genocide of the Palestinian people since 1948. But this particular episode that we've been looking at in horror in the last three and a half months would not have been possible without the lies and fabricated stories and the mythology of October 7th, okay? So that was done in full view of the world, used to justify a genocide in, in this high-tech society 40 beheaded babies, Hamas on a mass rape rampage, okay, all of this stuff. Uh, they killed four, uh, 1,400 uh, 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 Israeli uh, Jew, Jewish residents, the most ever since the Holocaust. The Palestinian resistance factions, what they call Hamas, did not kill 1,400 Israeli civilians. There were a number of soldiers included in there, uh, and also we find out later with exposures from the Israeli media, which nobody in the West wants to report on, that they themselves, through what they call friendly fire, killed perhaps hundreds, many hundreds, in fact, of their own people at the Nova Music Festival and in the kibbutzes. So between the soldiers, Israeli soldiers, the combatants, between the friendly fire, uh, we, there, we now have the lion's share of the casualties on October 7th. So where are the, what about all these civilians? Well, there very well may have been civilians killed on October 7th, but it certainly wasn't 1,400 or 1,200 or 1,000 or 900 or 800. I can go down even lower. That's just the reality, folks. So giving you a little bit of that. Hope that was helpful. Look, stick around. Top of the hour news headlines coming up. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We'll be back. We'll connect with our guest on the other side. Looking forward to that conversation. More stories coming and Basil Valentine as well. Stay with us. <laughs>